Committee on Foreign Relations will come to order. We want to thank you both uh, very much for being here. Um, we have had, uh, I might have to look back and see, we've been a little rushed. This is actually our third Iran uh, hearing today for those of us who are on banking and here. But uh, this is the final in a series, and we began on June 3rd talking about the regional implications. Uh, we're going to end our hearing uh, process prior to the debate that will take place in September with the regional aspect. And uh, I'm not going to deliver my normal opening comments. I'm just going to sort of pause with this. I was walking down the hallway with one of our uh, most thoughtful members, and I think he laid out an analogy that, uh, that, I, that I agree with wholeheartedly. And I, I guess as we've gone through all the details, the thing that keeps bothering me, uh, one of the biggest issues that bothers me is what we're in essence going to be doing with Iran is, you know, we know the momentum shifts in nine months, I mean, or the, the, the leverage shifts. I mean, all of the sanctions relief will take place uh, between now and next March and April. And so then they have the leverage of the nuclear snapback. And it's not unlike what we've seen in North Korea, where they have a weapon, uh, and basically uh, we're concerned about what they may do with South Korea, what they may do with their allies, and so we continue to allow North Korea to act out. We know that the way Iran acts out is they do so through terrorism in the region. Um, they're going to be greatly empowered. I mean, they're going to be on equal balance to us, whereas right now we have the leverage over them in nine months. That leverage is going to be alleviated. And I have to tell you, um, all of us today, uh, we're in a briefing with the IAEA, a very nice gentleman, the Director General, Mr. Romano, very, very nice gentleman. I just don't know how anybody could have sat through that meeting if you had any questions at all about the integrity of our uh, inspections. I don't know how anybody could have left there today feeling more assured, far less assured from my standpoint. And again, the fact that we can't even get access to documents. Uh, ben and I worked for four days to try to make sure we clarified every single agreement that had to be put forth to us. Uh, the fact that uh, they ran it through uh, Wendy Sherman and others who all know the IAE protocol and for us not to even know. So we've got this issue of concern about what they're really doing uh, in Iran during this period of time. The leverage shifts to them, so we have uncertainty about where they are, is my point, and then all of a sudden the leverage is with them. And I think that in the region, what we've done, uh, if this goes through, is we've created a situation where the United States is going to be very reticent, very reticent uh, to place any additional sanctions in place for fear that they will walk away from the deal, which empowers them in the region. So there no doubt has to be a regional strategy. I haven't seen it yet. We're obviously seeing the effects of the administration, uh, you know, giving support to various Arab allies and saying if you'll withhold any disagreement, uh, we'll supply you with X. We don't know what X is yet. I understand some people have been briefed on that. Maybe Ken, you know, or maybe Michael, you know. But I think this will be a very interesting hearing. I appreciate having experts like you come in and help us in this way. And I certainly want to thank uh, our outstanding ranking member who uh, we literally have almost lived together over the last two months in uh, working through these. Uh, it's been a very bipartisan, uh, strong 
effort to make sure that all of us know as much as we can before we come to a very serious debate that I hope in no way takes on any kind of... Uh, look, this is, says a lot about the senator. Um, this is not a partisan issue in any way. Do you feel that this agreement will keep Iran from getting a nuclear weapon or not? Every one of these countries knew that we were going to be taking this vote before the agreement was reached. And so this is, again, we're just carrying out our obligations. And to try to put, try to turn this into a partisan issue, which I, I will just go ahead and say in this hearing that I feel like the administration is trying to do to diminish, to, to diminish legitimate concerns that people have, to me, is inappropriate. This is going to be a tough vote for everyone here. I will say right now, I will never criticize anybody for their vote, because I think everybody uh, hopefully will vote their conscience based on what they feel is in the national interest of our country. With that, uh, Ranking Member Cardin. Well, the Chairman Corker, we're going to test our strength of our relationship because we're going to be apart for almost five weeks. We'll see how we survive. <laughs> Don't exaggerate, four weeks. Oh, no. It's five weeks. It's, it's, I think it's four weeks and six days that we get out today. And if you go back to last Monday with the last vote, anyway, well, we, 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 uh, we're on day 17 of the 60-day review. And day f number, f uh, I think this is the fifth uh, public hearing we've had. Uh, and I just really first want to uh, uh, thank and congratulate the leader of our committee, Senator Corker, for uh, how he has used this period of time to not only inform the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but to inform the entire Senate uh, on uh, the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, we, I think, envisioned it would be this way, but it was your leadership that really focused us and used our time, I think, in the most effective way. And it is difficult, and they're not easy decisions. And you have given us, I think, the material we need in order to analyze this and come to the right decision for our country. So thank you very much for your, for your extraordinary leadership. And I also want to thank the members of this committee. Um, our hearings have gone rather long because just about every member of the committee has been here to question, which I think is uh, reflective of the seriousness that the members have taken uh, on this assignment. So uh, I, I thank each member of the committee on both the Democratic and Republican side and our staffs for all the hard work they've put in during this review period. Uh, Mr. Singh, thank you for being here. Dr. Pollack, thank you for being here. Uh, this hearing, we want to focus on the U.S. policy in the Middle East. Uh, what, what are the ramifications of this agreement in regards to our regional issues? The, the Middle East is critically important to U.S. national security. What are the impacts of this agreement going forward on our national security uh, in the, the Middle East? Uh, I share uh, Senator Corker's ultimate view, and that is we have to decide whether this agreement puts us on a better path or a worse path to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapons state. That's a game changer for the region. We know that. And we've been trying to analyze that. But part of this is what happens if this deal goes forward and there is compliance with the agreement. What impact does that have on the regional security in the Middle East? I do not expect Iran's behavior in the region to change. At the end of the day, this is still an anti-American, anti-Semitic, revolutionary regime who has cultivated a network of proxies to challenge stable governments in the region and protect dictators like Assad in Syria. If the agreement goes forward, uh, Iran will have additional financial capabilities. We know that. 
Uh, we also know that they will uh, have the ability after time to move forward in a more aggressive way on its ballistic missile program and on uh, its uh, non uh, on its conventional arms uh, issues with the embargo being lifted after uh, five years. So what is the impact on regional security, our Gulf state uh, countries and the state of Israel? What is the uh, impact of a legal enrichment program in Iran in regards to what other countries in that region may want to do in order to uh, uh, enrich or have the capacity to match Iran's uh, capacity in the region? Uh, what will happen with the balance of power in the Middle East? These are all questions that I would hope we would be engaged in this discussion. U.S. leadership in the Middle East is critically important. We know that. What steps should the United States take, including the Congress, for an effective regional security strategy? And that's where I hope this particular hearing will help us fill in some of those blanks. With that, Mr. Chairman, I look forward to hearing from our witness. Thank you, sir. And our first witness is Michael Singh, Managing Director of Lane Swing, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute. Uh, I know we've had multiple conversations, I'm sure you have with most on the committee. We thank you very much for sharing your expertise. And Dr. Ken Pollack, a Senior Fellow at the Center for Middle Eastern Policy at the Brookings Institute, also someone we've heard from a great deal and respect a great deal. We're privileged to have you here, if you will. Y'all have done this many, many times. Uh, take about five minutes uh, to generally uh, outline what you'd like to say. Your written documents without objection will be entered into the record, and then we'll have some questions. Again, thank you for being here, and start in whatever, whatever order you'd like to start. Okay, thank you. Um, Thanks a lot, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, and members of the committee. Um, it's, I've been working on this issue for about 10 years, and it's an honor to be before you today to talk about it. And it's an honor to be with Ken, uh, who's uh, an analyst uh, for whom I have the highest respect. The nuclear agreement that we're looking at with Iran has strong points and weak points. Uh, my judgment, however, is that it leaves Iran with a significant nuclear weapons capability and indeed, it allows Iran to improve that capability over the life of the deal while obtaining broad upfront sanctions relief, like, like you mentioned, Mr. Chairman. Um, I believe that this has been Iran's twofold objective throughout these talks, throughout now the sort of 12 plus years we've been talking to them, um, to escape rather than to have to confront the strategic choice between retaining a nuclear weapons option uh, on the one hand and diplomatic and economic rehabilitation on the other hand. Uh, this is relevant to the topic at hand, the regional question, because Iran's nuclear ambitions are not separate from, but in my view are part and parcel of, its larger regional strategy, which emphasizes projecting Iranian power uh, while creating an inhospitable environment in the region for the United States and our allies. Uh, Iran doesn't do this through conventional military power, and I don't think that they will. Uh, They'll, they do it, and they will do it, I think, through asymmetric capabilities, such as proxies, arms trafficking, sea denial tactics, cyber activities, uh, and missiles. There's nothing in the accord that requires Iran to cease these activities or incentivizes Iran to change its uh, strategy. Uh, and indeed, I would say that the deal seems more likely, uh, as you mentioned, uh, Senator Cardin, to facilitate that strategy. Um, Iran is going to have additional resources should it wish to help uh, some of its proxies who have been financially squeezed recently. Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, uh, the Houthis in Yemen, there are plenty of uh, reports out in the open source suggesting they have been financially squeezed. Um, it can ensure that its militias in Iraq, uh, those Iranian-backed militias, can outmatch 
the official security services much as they do in Lebanon, uh, with all the consequences that has had, uh, as well as to buy political influence in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, and with the removal of the ban on Iran exporting arms uh, and the lifting of sanctions on the import of Iran arms to Iran in no more than five years, uh, Iran is going to face fewer impediments to arming those proxies. Uh, while we do have some other authorities, as the President has mentioned, uh, to target that kind of activity in some circumstances, uh, I would say that those have been little used and that they're weakened rather than strengthened by this accord. So, for example, we're losing the UN panel of experts, which was set up uh, professionally to monitor Iran's arms activity. Um, these kinds of actions by Iran would, I think, spur a reaction by our allies in the region who consider Iran their chief rival. Um, they may act, I think, more aggressively, more autonomously to counter Iranian proxies. I think we're already seeing this dynamic play out in places like Yemen and Syria and Iraq and elsewhere. Um, they may even choose to pursue nuclear capabilities of their own, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman. I also think that increased Iranian interventionism um, would feed the already rampant sectarian polarization in the region. Um, I think Iran's involvement in conflicts in Syria and Iraq is one element that fuels support for groups like ISIS uh, and, frankly, that ISIS uses as a recruiting tool uh, in those places. Um, looking beyond the Middle East, because I think this has wider implications, Iran is likely to bolster its ties with Russia uh, and especially with China. Um, both of them share with Iran a basic interest in challenging the U.S.-led international order. Uh, and I think that their cooperation is not just going to take diplomatic and economic uh, aspects. I think it will take military aspects as well. Um, Moscow and Beijing are already Iran's largest suppliers of arms. And Russia, I think, is likely to soon provide Iran with non-sanctioned systems like the S-300 or better, um, and may, I think, quickly come to the Security Council asking for exemptions for more arms exports. And it's going to be a matter of political will to stand up against those and block them. Uh, Russia and China will also be able to assist Iran's ballistic missile program when sanctions are lifted in eight years. And it's particularly important, I think, for Iran's efforts to develop ICBMs, which I think would benefit enormously from foreign assistance from such countries. Uh, a particular challenge, Mr. Chairman, for U.S. interests in the region is Iran's pursuit of a rudimentary anti-access area denial strategy in the Persian Gulf. That region is well-suited to an A2AD strategy because of its narrow confines, its highly concentrated population centers, uh, and its target-rich environment, for example, vulnerable energy infrastructure. And it's an area where uh, Iran could benefit from Chinese assistance. We already see China pursuing its own uh, much more advanced A2AD strategy in the Western Pacific. Uh, there was one analyst from CSBA, the think tank, uh, who said that Iran could enhance its A2AD strategy immensely through selected high-end purchases, uh, such as enhanced missiles, and by expanding its low-end investment in sea mines, fast attack craft, well-armed proxies, and this would be a significant challenge for the United States. Now, some of these effects, as has been stated, uh, we would see some of these regional effects we would see as a consequence of any nuclear deal that's not preceded by an Iranian strategic shift. Uh, and I think that's why it's so important to ensure that the benefits of the nuclear deal outweigh these costs. Uh, but as it is, I think we're going to have to invest very significant resources to offset the downsides of the accord. And these will include things like increased resources for the intel community and for the IAEA to monitor what Iran is doing, um, increased assistance <coughs> excuse me, for our regional allies, uh, and a real effort to repair relations with those regional allies, uh, a review of our military posture in the region to make sure that we are well positioned to counter an Iranian A2AD strategy 
which to me has to be done in the context of an overall increase in defense resources if it's going to be seen as credible by our adversaries, uh, as well as more proactive policies to counter reigning activities in Syria, Iraq, and elsewhere. I worry that instead we may be self-deterred, as you mentioned, Mr. Chairman, from really um, holding Iran to this treaty like we have, I think, been with the INF treaty with Russia, with the Syria chemical weapons arrangements. Um, and I think we need to be very careful to avoid instead incrementally shifting our own policies uh, in a misguided effort to bolster Rouhani and protect him against hardline backlash that he may have inside Iran, uh, or just to demonstrate that uh, the transformative effects of this deal. Um, I think we need to disincentivize destabilizing policies by Iran, uh, incentivize more beha constructive behavior, but the strategic shift needs to be Iran's, not ours, uh, which is one of the things I fear. Um, to me, the bottom line is that we have negotiated a weak deal and painted ourselves into a diplomatic corner. Um, the alternative, I don't think, is war. I think that's wrong. I think the alternative is, though, a mess with our allies, some important allies. Um, but in the longer run, what I'd argue is the real question isn't going to be whether but when we need an alternative policy, because even in the best-case scenario, uh, this deal is narrow, uh, and its limitations start phasing out in anywhere from 5 to 15 years, which means this problem will be bequeathed to a future president. And I think one question to look at is, are we bequeathing it with a better or worse framework and tools to deal with it? Um, the, the agreement may buy time if it works as intended, but it buys time for Iran, too. And I have no doubt that Iran will use that to advantage. Thanks. Thank you very much, Dr. Pollack. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Ranking Member Cardin. Distinguished Senators, uh, it's a pleasure to once again be speaking before you and a pleasure to be sharing the dais with my friend Mike Singh. I want to start just briefly because I've not been on record anywhere else by saying that I find myself an unenthusiastic but nevertheless firm supporter of the agreement. Unenthusiastic because I believe that this is a weaker deal than we might have gotten. Uh, I was not present in the negotiating chambers, uh, so I don't know exactly how things could have gone, but given where we were two years ago, I do believe it was possible to have gotten a stronger deal. That said, I am also a firm supporter of it because I believe that first, it is not a bad deal. It has some important strengths. And I do believe that it will ultimately leave us in a position where, we, where our national interests are better served by accepting it than by rejecting it. And for me, that is the ultimate criteria upon which to judge this deal itself. That said, I completely agree with uh, the thrust of Mike Singh's remarks that ultimately, where this deal is really going to be made or broken is in the region. We should all remember that our concern about the Iranian nuclear program was not that the Iranians would acquire nuclear weapons and suddenly lob one at Tel Aviv or Riyadh or Mecca or someplace else that we cared about. It was always about how it would enable Iranian subversion and aggression in the region. And that's where this is all going to play out. And I think that it behooves us then to focus, as you're doing in these, uh, in these hearings on this question of what should U.S. policy toward the region be after a deal. Uh, to make a point that I've made several times, but I think that also reflects what Mike just said, I look at this deal, and this is my words, not his, I look at this deal as a pretty good deal for 10 or 12 years. After that, it's a bet. It's a bet that either Iran will change fundamentally or that circumstances will constrain Iran in such a way that it does not resume its efforts to acquire a nuclear weapon once the strictest terms of the deal have been set aside, moved past by the subsequent terms of the deal. For that reason, what happens in the region becomes even more important. 
We've got 10 to 12 years to set the stage properly, to shape the environment, to make sure that Iran is not able to take advantage of that period, but also hopefully to put Iran in a position where in 10 or 12 years, its cost-benefit analysis, if not its regime, has changed fundamentally. And its approach to the region, to our allies, to our interests is fundamentally changed. That's going to be a major challenge. Right now, as you're all aware, uh, we've got a very big problem on our hands in the region. Our allies are deeply frightened by what they see going on. They are concerned that the agreement will enable the Iranians to become more aggressive uh, in ways that uh, the region does not need, given all how unstable it already is. They're also, I would suggest, even more concerned about where U.S. policy toward the region may go afterwards. I think that they are all, as I hear it from them in private, terrified that the United States will see the nuclear agreement with Iran as a get out of the Middle East free card, as a chance to say, we've solved the biggest security threat facing the Middle East, now we're done, we can leave and disengage even further. That, I would suggest to you, is the greatest fear of our allies in the region, and it is where a future U.S. policy, a post-JCPOA policy, has got to be focused. We have got to find ways to reassure our allies. In addition, I think that we are also going to have to find ways to deter the Iranians. We have heard now from the Supreme Leader, from a number of hardliners, there seems to be no indication that the Iranians are planning to dramatically change their policy toward the region. In fact, everything that we have been hearing, I would suggest, indicates that the Iranians intend perhaps to even become somewhat more aggressive if only to demonstrate what I'm calling their revolutionary mojo that they haven't lost the thrust of Khomeini's philosophy, that they are still committed to an anti-American, anti-status quo policy, regardless of any nuclear agreements with the United States. They may also seek to test us. They, too, may wonder if the United States is looking to disengage even further from the Middle East in the wake of a nuclear agreement. And if they don't find the United States staunchly standing its ground, backing up its allies and ready to push back on them, they may decide to push harder, both out of opportunity and again to demonstrate whatever revolutionary credentials they still feel it's necessary. For me, all of this comes down to a question mark about where the United States is planning to go in its regional policy after the JCPOA has come into effect. And to me, that is ultimately a far greater consequence than the technical details of the deal. Whether it's 25 days or 20 days or 30 days before a violation can be enacted upon, to me, is not terribly useful, not terribly meaningful. To me, what's important is how the United States is going to behave in the region. Because if we behave in one way, I think that we will terrify our allies and we will embolden the Iranians. And what we have seen from our allies over the last four or five years is that when they are frightened, they get aggressive. And they do not get aggressive in a good way. They do not have the political, military, or economic capacity to act aggressively in their region. And I would simply hold up Saudi Arabia's unprecedented intervention in Yemen as exhibit A of that. This was a war that they should never have gotten involved in. And they did it, as they will say in private, because the United States wasn't doing more for them. That's where we have to put our focus. And I simply would like to close by saying that when I look around the region, 
I fear that it is going to require the United States actually stepping up and pushing back on the Iranians, both to reassure our allies and to deter the Iranians. And when I look around the region and look at the potential venues, fortunately, we've got no shortage of places where we could take it to the Iranians. Uh, it's a joke. I'm being horribly sarcastic with that. But unfortunately, only one really stands out. Yemen is a place where we should be trying to get the Saudis to do less, not more from us. Iraq is very fragile and will probably require both Iranian and American cooperation to make that turn out well. And for better or worse, mostly worse, we have surrendered much of our former influence in Iraq to the Iranians, and therefore it too is not the right battlefield. Syria strikes me as the place. And in my mind, signing the JCPOA ought to come with a new commitment on the part of the United States to finally make good on the pledges that we've made to actually commit meaningful support to the Syrian opposition, to demonstrate again to our allies that we're willing to stand up to the Iranians, to, our, to the Iranians that we're not going to back down if they try to run the table on us. I'm going to defer to the ranking member on, uh, on questions like I have on several of these and maybe interject a few things that I do want to just if I could, there, there will be no question a conventional arms race taking place in the Middle East as a result, and we're going to be assisting in that. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. And, and secondly, there is going to be, uh, I described one of my colleagues walking over here giving the best analogy. He can own up to it if he wishes, but there is going to be a new tension created that uh, will cause us uh, potential trepidation as it relates to some of Iran's activities and whether we really wish to counter because of them, again, within nine months, uh, uh, the leverage changing to agree. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I might put it this way, Senator. I think that there will be new challenges from the Iranians. But my assessment, both of our allies and the Iranians, is that how we, the United States, respond to those challenges is really what's critical. What we've seen in the past is when the United States steps up, acts with determination, it reassures our allies, and the Iranians typically back down. They do not want to fight with the United States of America. The problem is typically when we act in the opposite fashion, which again frightens our allies, causes them to overreact in very dangerous ways, and can embolden the Iranians. I'm going to reserve my remaining six minutes. Ranking Member Cardin. I thank both of you for your, uh, for your testimony. Um, there's no question that we entered into these diplomatic negotiations because of the significance of Iran in, in the Middle East. And we didn't want Iran to become a nuclear weapon power for several reasons, but it's just too consequential in that region and the world for a country that has already demonstrated its um, interference in the region to have then the nuclear card. So one thing you said, Dr. Pollack, that concerns me, maybe we'll clarify this a little bit, because the question I'm really going to ask you is, it depends on how U.S. behaves, and I agree with that. What action should this administration and Congress, hopefully working together, do to make it clear to Iran uh, that uh, this is one part of our relationship. It's not the exclusive part, and we are going to watch very carefully what they do in regards to their human rights records, what they do in regards to their missile program, what they do in regards to interference in other countries in the region. You've already mentioned uh, but in Lebanon with, with the Hezbollah, the Houthis in Yemen, uh, the support for the Assad regime. All that is 
concern to us. But the, what, what got me a little bit concerned is when you said that the United States should respond by more aggressiveness. It seems like we meet their additional support by a military response by the United States. Isn't that just accelerating a military confrontation, which I thought this agreement's trying to find a diplomatic solution for the region? Thank you, Mr. Ranking Member. Um, I think that's a very fair question. It gives me a chance to spell out a little bit more my thinking. Um, I'm not suggesting that the United States deploy ground troops to Syria. I don't think that that is necessary. I was hoping that would be your response. <laughs> that said, I do think that there are any number of reasons, now including the potential regional response to the JCPOA, that argue in favor of greater American assistance in building a viable Syrian opposition, providing it with the support that it needs, both to defeat Daesh, ISIS, ISIL, whatever we're calling it this week, as well as the Assad regime. Stabilize the country, end the civil war there. It's something that I think that this chamber in particular has recognized for a long time. Obviously, there's been a great deal of debate over exactly how to do that. But the position that the administration articulated in September of last year actually laid this out, I thought, very nicely. I would go back to uh, Chairman Dempsey's remarks to the SASC, where he laid out the strategy. I thought it looked beautiful. The problem is that we've never actually resourced or fulfilled the strategy as it was laid out. And I think, again, for a whole variety of different reasons, that was a mistake. What I'm trying to put on the table is that I think that in the wake of the JCPOA, doing something like that, actually making good on the pledges made by this administration with regard to Syria is actually going to become even more important. Couldn't this lead to a, a greater military involvement by the United States in the region? It's certainly possible. If the Iranians uh, believe that the United States is backing down, uh, sure, we may have to. But what I'm really looking for is how do we avoid that? And again, my experience, my read of history, and you know, Michael, pardon me, you said you've been working on this 10 years. I've been working on this for 28 years, 27 years. Um, my experience of the Iranians is that where we get into the most trouble is whenever we convey weakness to them. They're always probing, they're always looking, they're very opportunistic. And when they see that the United States is pulling back from somewhere, it doesn't know what it's doing, then the Iranians will push forward. Typically, when we have pushed on them, when we have said to them this far and no further, we will push back on you, we see the Iranians pull back in a very significant way. But the way. problem is Iran is pushing forward currently under sanctions in a lot of different regions, a lot of different areas. It's not just one, it's not just Syria. With more resources, they could, push more aggressively in multiple areas. And for the U.S. to counter that, if I understand what you're saying, what some of us have talked about is how do we use uh, the same tools we use for nuclear, use more aggressively for uh, their terrorist activities, human rights activities, that is, look at a more sophisticated sanction regime uh, on Iran if they, in fact, use greater these resources to increase their human rights violations and terrorist activities. But it seems to me you're taking a different tack, saying we should match them with our military involvement. Not necessarily, I understand you're not talking about troops on the ground, uh, but it, it, it's a somewhat different than I think some of us had hoped. Let me get the, the well, Mr. Singh. I, I, think that, I think that it's right, unfortunately. I agree with, with Ken here, um, but I, I see it as sort of a downside of our approach. Uh, in that I think you're absolutely right, Senator. My reading of the actual text of the JCPOA suggests that we could reimpose oil export sanctions, financial sanctions for terrorism grounds or human rights grounds, for example. 
I, I'm skeptical, though, that our allies will agree with us on that. I mean, it's worth going back in the history of this negotiation. Um, we had sought a strategic shift by Iran. We, we, it's wrong to say that we were always just focused on the nuclear question for reasons that both Ken and I have talked about. What is true, though, is that we had an awfully hard time getting support from allies for things like terrorism-related sanctions. Remember, getting the EU to designate Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, or Hamas, for example, even though they're Iranian proxies. We, we focused the UN process on proliferation because it's a lot easier to get the allied support, uh, including of Russia and China, on that issue. Um, but it's not to say that was our only concern. Uh, the idea was you use that issue as a way to uh, drive a tough bargain and get the strategic shift you're looking for. But now having sort of sacrificed those instruments, um, I think it's going to be, A, really tough to get support to reimpose them um, in the way that we did before. Remember, we had the UN Foundation for all those ad hoc or, or sort of multilateral sanctions we did on top of it. Um, and so what you're going to be left with is your toolkit has shrunk. And your toolkit now consists of more kinetic action uh, or less effective sanctions like, we've, uh, like we were using in the past before these newer form of sanctions that we've been using recently. Is there anything that Congress should do uh, now in contemplation if this agreement is going forward? On this particular topic, I would say that what would be awfully useful um, would be, uh, and I, I don't know if this is for Congress or, or not, but a, a basically a statement by not just the United States but our allies to the effect that uh, how we read this agreement, that it actually does allow us to reimpose these sanctions for other grounds, and we are not making any promises to give Iran impunity on these other issues. But I think that's awfully going to be awfully tough to get, uh, even from our closest European allies. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Pollack, you mentioned that uh, on balance you think this is a good deal. Let me just ask you this. Against the, the original criteria, the, the criteria, the goal was to uh, preclude Iran from ever becoming a nuclear weapon state. Against that standard, how, how would you evaluate this? Senator, I can only say that the jury is out. Uh, we don't know whether or not Iran will become a nuclear weapons state. Uh, I think it is going to be difficult and unlikely that they will choose to do so in the next 10 years. And as I said, after that, we don't know. Um, as it, it is a bet after 10 years. So the question is, are we in a stronger position 10 years from now or a weaker position? And I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think that the 10 years is variable. We all know that. Um, are we in a stronger position or weaker position relative to the sanctions regime, uh, relative to their economic strength, um, what, uh, other developments in the region, and so forth. So the question is, and I agree with Mr. Singh, we, we, it's, there are three options today. One is the deal, two is war, three is something we hardly ever talk about here, and that's, a, that's imagining a doubling down of the sanctions that got into the table in the first place. Would you address both of those issues for me, please, quickly? Sure. Uh so I may be one of the first people who actually proposed this whole conception of using the sanctions to bring the Iranians to the table in a book I wrote back in 2004. Um, and I will say that uh, I think that we did reasonably well with it, as it, I think we might have done better. Um, I am deeply skeptical, though, that we're going to be able to hold the sanctions in place if the deal is turned down. Um, and again, I say this with no love. I would love to be able to say to you, absolutely, the international community is with us. Uh, vote down the deal. We will get a better one. That is simply not my analysis of the circumstances. Mr. Singh, uh, I've had two trips. I've been blessed with two trips to the Middle East, um, two private meetings with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. A couple of us have, have actually met with uh, five heads of state. Uh, we had a prime minister, or a foreign minister, rather, from uh, Saudi Arabia here just a couple weeks ago. 
I echo what you both uh, have said already, and that is the overwhelming conclusion that we walked away from those meetings uh, with was that there is tremendous trepidation about what it is our intention is and what our strategy going forward is among our allies. And I'm very concerned that if we go ahead with this deal as a uh, proxy for um, our relationship with them without telling them ex specifically what our strategy is, that uh, we create uh, a false sense of security there and it, it encourages them to do things that otherwise they wouldn't do. Let me just mention one, Saudi Arabia and Yemen. I mean, that, that to me is a direct result. Saudi Arabia visiting Moscow just week, weeks ago uh, talking about arms purchases. So I'm very concerned about a realignment, if you will, of strategic alliances in the region that are directly driven by uh, a deal that causes more questions than it, than it uh, questions and answers. Uh, Mr. Singh? Well, I, I think that fear is justified, Senator. I, I think even before this deal, um, as many of you senators know, there, there were a lot of concerns from our allies in the region um, that we were um, looking to disengage from the region. Uh, things like the withdrawal from Iraq in, in 2011, um, the, the, the talk about a pivot to Asia, talk about energy independence, even if those things were justified. The, the, the failure to put them in a strategic context, the failure to assert um, continued American leadership in the region, the failure to follow up on things like the Syria red line, I, I think had a damaging effect on our credibility there. And now if you, if you look at what we're doing here, it looks from the outside like a major strategic reversal. So we're going from isolating Iran to now facilitating Iran's re-entry into the international financial system. We're going from sanctioning Iran to relieving sanctions, from opposing their nuclear program to actually assisting, uh, in many respects, their nuclear program. Um, because we haven't situated that in any articulation of how this fits into a larger strategy, I think the tendency of our allies is to assume that there's some unspoken strategic realignment, as you mentioned. Um, and that's going to be very tough to dispel, especially because, look, if we were relatively inactive against Iran before this deal, um, now that we have a vested interest in keeping this deal, what's the likelihood or the credibility that we're suddenly going to get really tough? I, I think folks just don't buy it. So one of the things that, that I see as a side derivative and we don't talk about because we're really trying to figure out if this, if this deal can stop them from becoming nuclear is the question, what happens with Russia's influence in the region and China's influence in the region? It looks to me like Iran is the conduit through which they improve their relationships in the Middle East relative to where we are today. I think that's right. I've done a lot of work on the question of the, the Chinese policy in the Middle East and the Chinese-Iran relationship in particular. Uh, and I think China sees Iran as its sort of natural strategic partner in the region. There's a strong economic relationship there that uh, that's, uh, rests on their oil trade, their energy trade. Um, it's the only place in the Middle East where you could reach uh, the Middle Eastern energy supplies by pipeline, so you don't need to worry about the U.S. Navy in the Persian Gulf. Um, and it's the only country there on the, on the Gulf Littoral, which so is let, not... Let me, can yes. we, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's a, that's a new point of, of understanding. So what you're saying, there's a possibility in the very near future that Iran will have the capability of precluding our Navy from the Persian Gulf. Um, look, there's, there's, it's certainly true, and I, I don't want to sort of get beyond my expertise on the energy issue, but um, certainly you see uh, China building pipelines and other sort of land-based energy infrastructure to try to bypass those maritime choke points. Um, and of course, you see uh, Iranian ports being developed outside of the Strait of Hormuz. I have one other question. Uh, what possible reason, and I'll throw this to both of you, I mean, what, why is the uh, ballistic missile development uh, no later than eight years from now so important to them. If, they, if they, all they want is a civil nuclear program, there are other eight, 18 other countries in the world 
that have civil programs that do not enrich, that are not allowed enriched. In fact, there are only five that are allowed to enrich who have civil programs that don't have nuclear programs. Um, countries like Japan, um, Germany, you know, uh, Holland, Brazil, Argentina. We've allowed Iran to bypass those 18. So I want to go to the ballistic missile. Right now they've got a series of missiles that they own. They're all mostly short range, but uh, they're developing this 1,400-mile uh, Sajol-2, I guess, missile. They have the Shahab family of missiles. My, my question is, this ballistic technology, why is that so important to them? That got put in this agreement late, we understand. Uh, so why is that so important to them? Well, look, when you look at a nuclear weapons program, uh, a delivery vehicle, a ballistic missile, is the third leg of that program. So it really has nothing to do with a civil nuclear program, right? Well, they'll say that it does. They'll say that it's not a civil nuclear program, but they'll say, no, the ballistic missiles have a, have a non-nuclear, not a non-military, of course, but a non-nuclear use. If you're developing the medium-range missiles, well, that's, you know, for regular warheads. If you're developing an ICBM, no, that's a space launch program to put satellites uh, into space. Um, the, the difficulty for us, I think, is that uh, as Secretary Carter, I think, said quite recently, an ICBM is one of the most dangerous things that Iran could possibly develop. I don't think any country uh, that doesn't have nuclear weapons has developed an ICBM. And what the agreement does is while it keeps Iran's ballistic missile program totally opaque, there are no inspections of the ballistic missile program, it lifts the cap, the ban on Iran conducting launches, for example. They could conduct a launch, uh, you know, at, on implementation day, and it's not banned by this agreement. And it removes the sanctions on foreign assistance in eight years. And if you want to build an ICBM, which is tough, foreign assistance, I think, would be critical. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. If I could actually clarify, the, they were banned from missile launches until this agreement. This agreement, for some reason, immediately lifts that ban on missile testing. Is that correct? That is correct. So uh, I believe it was Resolution 1929 banned Iran from conducting missile work and launches. And if you look at the new Resolution 2231, that binding language now becomes just hortatory language. That's right. Now, and, and just I'll use a minute of my time. Why do you think, why would we have agreed to listing, lifting that when you mentioned the, the ICAB, ICBM issue is for delivering a nuclear weapon, their ability, they already have an incredibly sophisticated ballistic missile testing program, ballistic missile program. Why do you think we chose to lift something, go backwards on that particular issue on the front end of this deal? What would have been the motivation on our part to do that? Well, I can, I can only tell you what U.S. officials have said, which, which you've uh, probably heard yourself, and that's uh, the idea that, well, this is just a nuclear agreement not a missile agreement. Um, you know, uh, I think that's a false dichotomy. If you look at all the UN Security Council resolutions on this issue prior to Resolution 2231, um, they talk about the missile program and the nuclear program in the same breath, in the same sentence. They're not seen as separate, they're seen as part and parcel. And second, there was this idea that, well, because Iran is doing its part, uh, we have to do our part, which is to lift all these sanctions. I, I think that's not right, because in fact, Iran has not fulfilled its obligations under those previous resolutions. We've changed those obligations. Uh, and so there's no reason we have to hold ourselves to the letter of a resolution that we're not holding Iran to. Uh, you can understand why Iran would want it. Again, if you want a nuclear weapons option, having a delivery vehicle is necessary. Uh, and so that's why one of my concerns is that, in fact, Iran will actually be able to enhance its nuclear weapons option over the next eight to 10 years. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and thank you both for your testimony. You know, uh, 
First of all, I, I think this question has been asked by you, Mr. Singh, uh, with reference to is this, this agreement a war? I think your answer to that was no. Is that correct? And Dr. Pollack, is this a disagreement a war? No, I think there are multiple possibilities. Okay. So that binary choice is not real. Uh, extrapolated down the road, a lot of things could happen, uh, but that binary choice is not real. And I, I really, I don't know, I think the administration does itself a disservice when they keep put it, positing that out there, including uh, the President's speech today. I mean, I, I, I don't quite get it. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, one of the things the President said in his speech today is that there is a bipartisan consensus in Washington about the dangers of a nuclear armed Iran as it could cause a regional arms race. And so uh, if that is true, and I do believe it's true, the only thing that prevents that nuclear arms race is a pretty ironclad belief by our partners in the region that somehow Iran won't get there by virtue of this agreement. Uh, but this agreement actually, despite the constant refrain that it, for all time, stops Iran from achieving a nuclear weapon, that's if there's absolute conformance uh, and adherence to the agreement. Is that not a fair statement? I, I think that's right. I mean, it's assuming that they're not able to undertake covert nuclear activities under the agreement, and also assuming that uh, they don't then expand their activities after the, the phasing out of the limitation. Right. So the, the reality, based on the 20-year history that Iran has had, is it's marched forward by deception, the, deceit, and delay, where they are on the verge of being a nuclear threshold state. A lot of history would have to change here in terms of the entire forward movement being without consequence in terms of challenges that they would present to violations of the agreement. So if I'm sitting in the Gulf, and I'm thinking about this 20-year history, and I'm thinking about that their infrastructure is largely still intact, although in some respects may be delayed, but it's intact. And I'm thinking about after the sanctions are gone in a year, two years, when they're flush with money and the world's dealing with them uh, and doing business with them, that any time beyond that that I decide to break out, that yes, we will have a warning, but we will be in no better position today, and one could argue that, in fact, that they will actually be resurgent economically, have greater defense mechanisms like the S-300, to mention a few. And so if I'm looking at that and I'm in the region, am I, and I say to myself in the region, I really have to seriously consider under the theory of mutual self-destruction as a preventative measure that I have to think about whether or not I'm going to pursue a nuclear weapon? Well, I, I think you're right, Senator. I think that in part because of the way this agreement works, that these limitations get phased out at a date certain. I think if you're, if you're a rival of Iran's, you've got to circle that date on the calendar, and that's the date by which you have to develop your own capability, or it certainly provides an incentive to provide a capability by, to develop a capability by that date. Um, because unlike our past proposals, which, were, uh, which would only review the limitations, review the agreement based on Iranian performance, again, this is a date certain. Um, and I, I think that one thing that has get, gotten lost in a lot of the debate here is that this is probably true even if Iran is being, being friendlier with the United States. 
um, the pr simple presence of a very large nuclear program in, in Iran, because Iran historically is seen as a rival by these countries, uh, will, I think, prompt them or at least incentivize them to develop their own nuclear capabilities. Uh, I don't think they're going to look first and foremost as to whether the U.S. and Iran have a, have a friendly or unfriendly relationship, um, because that requires sort of betting on uh, the future in a way that uh, they may not want to. Dr. Paul. Senator, I could jump in here. Uh, on this one, I think I do disagree somewhat with Michael. I think that you're correct that you've identified the incentives that the Gulf is feeling. And I think that there certainly will be a hedging strategy on their part. They will start looking into what it might take them to acquire a nuclear capability, certainly on the part of the Saudis in extremis. But I, where I disagree with Michael is in the role of the United States. I see the United States as the critical intervening variable here. Mm -hmm. The Saudis and the other Gulf states have faced other dire threats in the past, including nuclear threats. Uh, Iran has had a nuclear weapons program, since uh, active one since the 1980s, so too has Iraq. And the Saudis never did acquire a nuclear weapon because they felt they could rely on the United States. And that has always been their default position. Mm -hmm. When they believe that they can rely on the United States, they're very comfortable. In fact, that is their preference. So for me, to bring it back to where we started out, the critical question moving forward in dealing with what I think you've rightly identified as the concerns that they already have expressed, the question is, what do we do? Uh -huh. And in that regard, if I'm sitting in the Gulf and I look at uh, Ukraine, and look at the United States as a party to the Bucharest Agreement where we said give up your nuclear weapons. In this case, they wouldn't be giving up their nuclear weapons, but they'd be giving up their thoughts about having a nuclear weapon in return for the guarantees of your territorial integrity, and in this case, security. That didn't work out too well for the Ukrainians. So I'd have to be saying to myself, is this, you know, how is this guarantee going to be manifested at the end of the day that gives me sufficient assurance that I'm not going to move forward? Is that a fair statement? I absolutely agree with that. I, and I think that you're probably right that they may be thinking about Ukraine, but I suspect that they're looking at events closer to home which uh -huh. drive on the same point to them. As Michael mentioned, our disengagement from Iraq, our continuing failure to live up to our rhetoric on Syria, our general disengagement from the region, the pivot to Asia, the list goes on. Now, I uh, found a thing. I am uh, concerned that it would have seemed to me that in the same time that we were hopeful and taking two years to see if there would, could be an agreement, that we would have been having a parallel track that would have thought about if there is an agreement, and all along Iran has sought uh, significant sanctions relief, that we have a parallel track of a policy as to what happens when they get 100 or $150 billion, whatever the amount of money is. Because certainly a country that is already in the midst of the greatest state sponsor of terrorism and in the region with the Houthis in Yemen, with Hezbollah in Lebanon, with uh, propping up Assad, with uh, Mishif in Iraq having a totally different purpose in Iraq than we do, uh, ultimately if they were doing all of that with what little, the difficulties they're having, take only a small percent of that. Forget about it. Most of it, yes, will be spent domestically. Take only a small percent, you can create a lot more havoc. So. What, uh, so uh, we didn't do that uh, because we're now uh, scrambling thinking about, well, what are the aftermaths of this, if assuming the agreement is, is upheld. Succinctly, if you were to say to the Congress, to the administration, here are the th two, three major things we need to be doing right now in expectation that the agreement will survive and that, in fact, we need to be thinking about what to do in the region, 
what would you say, David? Well, I, I think here I would uh, agree with Ken that uh, we have to look uh, at countering Iranian activities in the region much more firmly, and I think Syria is the most important theater for doing that, but I think also in Iraq and in other places. Uh, I think we need to look hard uh, at our own uh, military posture in the region, uh, and I include in that sort of allied military postures to make sure that we are going to be able to stay one step ahead of whatever Iran might do uh, when it comes to this agreement. Um, and part of that has to be, as I guess my third point, we need to repair our relations with allies. This is all stuff we should have been doing, as you suggested, Senator, a long time ago, uh, if we knew that this sort of agreement was coming, uh, and we should certainly not have waited until now. Senator, if I can just quickly answer your question. Um, I might put Mike's point slightly differently. Number one, do not draw down our forces from the region. No peace dividend from this. Number two, we do need to expand our support to Iraq. We need, uh, I won't go into details, but we need to expand our support in Iraq. And third, we need to actually resource the plan that we put in place a year ago or announced a year ago to build a meaningful Syrian opposition, one that will challenge not just Daesh, but also the Assad regime. If I could, I'm going to use them one more of my minutes before we go to Flake, um, Senator Flake. I think what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, I know the President, and I agree with Senator Menendez, I wish you would not continue its disagreement or war. I mean, we, we've had their military folks in, and the folks who sat at the table said war has never been discussed. So we know that there's not going to be a war, and that's a fact. Iran knows there's not going to be a war. But what I hear you saying is, by virtue of this agreement, we're actually going to need to be more ro robustly involved uh, in preparation for kinetic activity in the region to, to, to keep things uh, uh, in balance. I mean, is that what you're saying, Ken? I might put it slightly differently, Senator, because I would have said that we needed to do the same thing even if we didn't get the agreement. Um, but I do think that there are aspects of the agreement that do tweak things slightly. But nevertheless, I think that the concerns of our allies and the suspicion of our adversary, the Iranians, that we are looking to disengage, those have been there for the past six years. And the agreement is simply part of the warp and woof of our policy along those lines. Thank you, Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for the testimony. Uh, Mr. Pollack, in your testimony, you mentioned a few times that you believe that, uh, uh, that Iran and others have testified in a similar vein, that Iran will seek to, uh, um, particularly the Ayatollah, to burnish his revolutionary credentials here uh, and to assure uh, those who he wants to assure that uh, they haven't lost their mojo, I think, as you put it, and, and that that would cause them to take action in the region, non-nuclear action, that uh, we would object to, obviously. Um, my concern has been that uh, in the agreement, it seems to prohibit us uh, from responding in ways we've traditionally responded uh, to Iran's behavior uh, through sanctions, for example. Um, we've received assurances from the administration that we still have all the tools in our toolbox to respond in this way but I can't help but think that we might be less likely to respond uh, given that our response, as Iran has already indicated, would be taken as uh, a move of bad faith and that it would free them up from their obligations to abide by this agreement. If we are so concerned now that in testimony, in, in answer to Senator Menendez's question as to whether or not we could Congress could actually pass legislation to renew 
the Iran Sanctions Act, so we would have something just to snap back to, not dealing with the president's waiver authority or anything else, um, said maybe not. We, we might not be able to do that. I, I fear that if we're reluctant, if this administration is reluctant to even countenance legislation reaffirming Congress's right to reimpose sanctions or to actually continue sanctions, um, then we might be reticent to confront Iran uh, in non-nuclear activity and that this agreement might move leverage uh, toward Iran here. Uh, can you respond to that, uh, both of you? Sure, Senator. And this is also in partial response to uh, Senator Cardin's point before. I think that it is fair for the Congress to look at whether they are, whether you are still able to employ sanctions as a tool against Iran, but I do think that it will be more difficult moving forward. I think that the both the letter and more importantly the spirit of the JCPOA and how it is being received internationally are going to make it far more difficult to find international support for new sanctions on Iran. It is one of the reasons why I think that the United States is going to have to look at the whole range of other tools in our toolkit, including pushing back on the Iranians at the unconventional level. Mr. Singh, microphone. I think your analysis was right, Senator, um, that uh, even though I think the text of the agreement uh, does not rule out uh, the fact that we can do that, I, I think we could interpret it to suggest that we could reimpose mm -hmm. those sanctions. Um, I do think that there will be a reluctance. And again, I would go back to uh, some other treaties, uh, like the INF Treaty, uh, where I think you've heard recently from the administration they believe that Russia's been violating the treaty, um, but we haven't seen consequences. The Syria chemical weapons arrangements, where there was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal that said, we don't believe that Assad has given up his chemical weapons. Well, the penalty for that was supposed to be U.S. military action, um, but we haven't done that. And so the leverage does tend to be with the less risk-averse party uh, and we tend to get very invested in simply keeping the agreements going, in a sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, I, again, I go back to my, my answer to Senator Cardin. Um, I think it's also going to be hard to build the allied support on those issues as opposed to the nonproliferation issue. Right. Well, that, uh, what concerns me is that if we are reluctant, if the administration is reluctant uh, to clarify with legislation, now, unfortunately, this is not a treaty. Uh, if it were, we could have pass RUDs uh, saying our reservations are our declarations, um, our understandings, uh, but that's not possible here. But if the administration is unwilling to say, hey, go ahead, pass the Iranian sanction, or, or I'm sorry, reauthorize it, so we'll have something to snap back to. If we're unwilling to have that type of confrontation over the meaning of the agreement, then it worries me that should Iran uh, run afoul of other obligations, you know, keeping their nuclear obligations, but con continuing to create mischief in the region, it, it worries me that we would be you know, less inclined to actually move to block that. And, uh, and that has serious implications uh, for the region and regional security. So I, I thank the chairman for that. Would uh, the gentleman yield, the senator yield for a bet. moment? To your point, uh, today in the Senate Banking Committee, we had uh, Assistant Secretary Sherman uh, and Mr. Zubin there. And I once again asked about simply, not whether the timing is right or not, but do we have the right under this agreement, and I read the section to, uh, that I believe makes it a problem of the agreement, and we, the answer is this is not the time to discuss that. Well, 
the Iranians had no problem in sending a letter to the Security Council saying that reintroduction or reimposition is a violation of the agreement and therefore it will allow us to walk away. So I'm just concerned that, going to the Senator's point, that if, if they're willing to assert what their view is, I'm not so sure why we are reticent to assert what our view is, unless our view is, which would be a problem here, I think, in the Congress, is that we can't reauthorize those. Thank you. Before turning to Senator Shaheen, I'll use another 30 seconds to say, on the INF agreement, it wasn't just the desire that you mentioned to keep the agreement in place. And I think that I think that's kind of where we end up. We don't want to challenge because we want to keep the agreement in place. It was also the concern they didn't even tell us. I mean, I know Senator Risch was quite upset during the START Treaty. I supported it. He didn't. Uh, but he was quite upset during the New START Treaty debate because the administration knew that Russia had violated the INF Treaty, but they were unwilling to tell us or our allies because they were afraid that it would somehow compromise our intelligence. So you have the issue you're talking about now, but also the issue of us not wanting to share with the IAEA or our allies what we know to be uh, a violation because we don't want to give up our sources. So I, I just want to add that that is a problem, okay? Uh, Senator Shaheen. Um, thank you. Thank you both for testifying. Um, Mr. Pollack, you in your testimony and here in speaking, you said that you believe this agreement is, um, as you put it, well, that it could be perceived as a get-out-of-jail-free card in the Middle East. And I just wondered if that is your assessment of where this administration and the Congress are with respect to the Middle East. Thank you, Senator. I'll be very honest and say I don't know. Um, the administration insists that that is not what they're intending. I worry that this is a case of me thinks the lady doth protest too much. Uh, the administration kept insisting all through its first six years that it was not disengaging from the Middle East, but it was. Uh, the, the pivot to Asia was typically described as being about how we had overinvested in the Middle East and had underinvested in Asia and needed to shift those priorities. Um, I think that all of that was very much mistaken both in terms of the rhetoric and the actions. Um, I would like to believe that the administration has recognized that uh, and is not planning on doing any more uh, in the region or towards disengagement in the region. But that's where I think that the Congress can play an enormous role. I think that if the Congress makes very clear that its support for the agreement is conditional on a robust American commitment to the region, I think that that's one uh, where the administration would be perfectly willing to give, uh, just as they may have been perfectly willing to give to the Iranians on some of the issues that Senator Menendez raised earlier. And on Monday, the members of the Gulf Cooperative Council announced that their viewpoint is that the JCPOA, when implemented, would contribute to the region's long-term security. Did this come as a surprise to you, and what are the interests that you think they weighed in coming to this conclusion? Uh, my 27 years dealing with the Gulf as well, I suspect that they said this because they knew that this is what the United States wanted to hear. Uh, in private, 
what I hear from them is very different. I hear a tremendous amount of trepidation on their part. Uh, they believe that the administration has disengaged from the region, and again, they fear that the agreement will be a further move. And as Michael described earlier, some of them, I think the most, much less sophisticated ones, fear that this is going to be the United States throwing them off for the Iranians. I think that the more sophisticated ones simply see an administration that was never terribly enamored of the Middle East always looking to remove itself from the Middle East and fear that this agreement will enable that even further. So again, I think it's about dealing with their fears, but again, I think that they're open to being persuaded otherwise. Um, and I'm not sure I understood what you were saying about an arms race in the Middle East. Were you suggesting that the, the agreement, if it were um, approved, would lead to an arms race in the Middle East, or that we shouldn't support providing additional arms to countries in the Middle East? Sure, yeah, complex question. I think that the agreement will uh, spur the arms race. There's already an arms race in the Middle East. I think it will further spur it. Uh, I think that the Iranians are going to have access to a lot more cash, which they are going to use to refurbish a badly dilapidated military. I think that that will be seen as very threatening by the GCC states, who will try to counter it with a buildup of, the, of, its, of their own. Um, you know, arms races uh, sometimes have been very destabilizing in history. On other occasions, they have not been. Um, and I think that, again, it's really how you manage it. All other things being equal, I'd prefer that there not be an arms race in the Middle East, although obviously it's quite useful for the American arms industry. But it may not be the worst thing. Um, well, I'm just trying to square that premise with the idea that one of the places where we can um, take some strong stands against the Iranians is in Syria. And, um, and given that our program there is supposed to be to identify um, oppos opposition um, groups that we can vet who will fight Assad, um, and obviously as part of that we're going to help arm them, um, train and equip them, I would ask what you think that does to, to this concern. And also, um, one of the things that I said on the Armed Services Committee, as Mr. Singh can tell you since he was um, there earlier this morning, um, a number of members of the Armed Services Committee have suggested that if, if we're going to do that with um, Syrian opposition groups, that it's very important that we also provide some protection for them, uh, i.e. air cover. Um, for any operations that they should be doing. And one concern that's been raised is the potential of that to escalate um, into war with Assad, direct war with Assad. And, and I wonder if you could just comment. And Mr. Singh, I would ask you to do that as well. So I think that the policy that we're trying to pursue in Syria is nonsensical. Uh, the idea that we are going to try to create a Syrian opposition where the members have no ties of any kind to any Islamist organization and are willing to solely fight Daesh and not the uh, Assad regime, uh, to me it's almost surprising that we did find 50 guys who were willing to do that. Um, okay, okay, so help me understand what other kinds of measures you think we ought to be taking in Syria. Should we be establishing a no-fly zone? Should, should we be providing that air cover for um, people who are going to be trained and equipped 
under that program. What other kinds of measures are you suggesting we sure. take there? And Senator, I'm glad to speak with you offline at much greater detail on this. It's a subject on which I've written extensively. But let me simply say that first, it will require a much greater effort to train a much larger Syrian opposition, create a conventional Syrian opposition force, one tasked to suppress all of the fighting in Syria. That means dealing with ISIS and Nusra and the regime and Harasham and everybody else, not just picking out our particular bad guy of the moment. It will mean very significant air support. Uh, a no-fly zone would only be the half of it, but I wouldn't start with a no-fly zone. Until we actually have an opposition army capable of taking the field, all we need to be doing is defending them. But it also requires a very significant political piece where I don't see us having made even the, the, the slightest effort to start. You know, it's a lesson that we should have learned from Iraq, from Afghanistan, Bosnia, Cambodia, Timor, all of these other civil wars that we have seen uh, external powers, including ourselves, get involved in over the last 15 years. We've learned an enormous amount. You cannot win these militarily. You have to win them militarily. You have to create a military stalemate. But that's only the starting point for a new power sharing arrangement and the building of new institutions that can actually govern and rule the country. Mr. Chairman, can I get Mr. Sure. Singh to comment on that? Sure. The Syria piece? Well, look, I, I agree with Ken. Um, there, there's nothing Ken said that I wouldn't uh, second. I, I'll just say that I think that it's important as you look at the administration's strategy that we not be sort of led into a strategy by increments or by simply reacting to what's happening. That, that makes me very uncomfortable. I think it's important that you have a sense of what are we trying to accomplish? We plan out the strategy to do it, and then we resource that adequately to get it done. Uh, and I'm concerned that instead what you're seeing is this kind of drip-by-drip drip type of approach. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm going to add another 30 seconds here and say, um, there's, by the way, there were 54 that signed up. Seven were captured in the last week, so there are 47 left in this train-equip program. Um, I think the lack of any seriousness with Syria is also leading, I think Senator Sheen is on the right track. I mean, I think that's leading to much concern. And I think for any of us to believe, there was a great story today, I think it was in the Washington Post about the National Security Council. And instead of having any kind of central effort where you try to get everything going at one time, that's exactly what they do. They pick one thing at a time. And to think, uh, I hate for this to sound pejorative, but after six and a half years, um, after us passing an AUMF relative to Syria, as a, after us passing uh, an assistance package and none of it being acted on really appropriately, I don't think there's any body that would believe that there's going to be a, a coordinated, somebody put in charge effort in the Middle East to deal with these from between now and November of 2016. I mean, that's not going to happen. There may be elements, but, it's, but it seems to me, and I get back to Senator... Uh, to one of our senators earlier, uh, Senator Flake, I think that is another fallacy here is that that hasn't been developed, it hasn't been thought about, and so you end up in this situation where you have tremendous concerns, you have this escalation, and you have people that are concerned about our commitment who therefore end up doing things that are not in the best interest of the region. Uh, Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think the administration's strategy is very clear. Rather than peace through strength, it's really peace through withdrawal. And we've seen that uh, just very succinctly. I, I want to kind of build to uh, give you an opportunity to, to uh, expound a little bit more on a couple of points. But do either of you believe that there's any reason whatsoever for Iran to have a peaceful nuclear program or enrich for a peaceful program? I know, Mr. Singh, I, I, in your sure. testimony, not. Uh, but uh, 
I, I, would, I would say that most of these activities in which Iran is engaged don't have uh, a, a clear, sensible civilian purpose. There's only one reason. Dr. Pollack, you agree with that? Yes, I do. So, so they want a nuclear weapon. It's clear. Do e either of you believe with this deal that they've really abandoned that ambition? No, I mean, quite the opposite. I think uh, this, this will enable them to cement that nuclear weapons option. Dr. Pollack. I don't know. Uh, that's my position on this. I think that the Iranians have made an agreement. I think that I think that it is likely for the next three, five, perhaps ten years, they won't try to acquire a nuclear weapon. I think that it is advantageous to them to agree to this. What I don't know about is what happens after ten years. I'm, I'm fairly certain. Uh, you did mention that it's going to cause a conventional arms race. I agree with that. New tensions, new challenges. Uh, you said we can avoid that if the U.S. steps up, uh, acts with determination, isn't backing down doesn't convey weakness. Again, in, in, you, in your own words, Dr. Pollack said, the list goes on that contradict us showing any kind of strength, correct? Uh, we would need to do better than we've done right. so far, Senator. So, so again, here, here are my assumptions, here are my predictions. Iran is going to be on a path to get a nuclear weapon, and Dr. S or Mr. Singh, I think you laid out very carefully, or convincingly in your testimony, that they're going to use this agreement to do exactly that. I mean, they're just kind of delay. It's, this, is, this gives them the time to, to build up their capabilities so when all these things go away, they're right there. So that being the case, uh, the fact that we really have been engaged in the strategy of, of peace through withdrawal, what's going to happen over the 18 months, the next 18 months? I mean, predict that out. I mean, how, how is Iran going to behave? How are they going to increase their influence? What is the next president going to have to deal with, and, and how are they going to be able to deal with this situation in uh, 18 months? I'll start with you, Dr. S or Mr. Singh. Look, I, I think that Iran's regional strategy will remain essentially the same, except that they will have more resources to pursue it and fewer impediments ahead of them, except to the extent that now we uh, engage in new policies to create more impediments as a result uh, of this deal. But again, a, con a conventional arms race, so, so those Gulf states are building up arms. We obviously can't train and engage in the strategy. That you, you said it was a great strategy, just impossible to implement in Syria. Okay, so, I mean, so arms race, no pushback in Syria whatsoever. Uh, withdrawal from Iraq, Iran increasing influence in Iraq. What, what, what is this going to look like in 18 months? Well, I, I think it looks worse, frankly. And, and I just have a clarification on the arms race. I don't disagree with the idea there's going to be an arms race, but I think we need to bear in mind it's going to be asymmetric. I don't think the Iranians are going to be building aircraft carriers. Uh, I think they're going to continue to invest in these asymmetric capabilities, uh, relatively cheap. It's an anti-access area denial strategy, um, but they'll, again, sort of have more resources to do it. And so it's not just a money against money sort of uh, challenge here, as it's been characterized out there a little bit so far. But, but again, that's, that's, that asymmetric strategy has been extremely effective at stabilizing the, the region, right, and really accomplishing their, their strategic objectives, Iran's? Oh, not, not effective in, in stabilizing the region. Maybe I misheard you. No, de destabilizing. I mean, Iran has not had success, for example, in winning the war in Syria. Uh, I don't think they have had much success against ISIS. But again, I think that if their strategy is simply to project their power and influence, their influence in Syria over the Assad regime is now, I would say, almost total. Um, their influence in Lebanon is very significant. Their influence in Iraq has grown, and they've made the environment less hospitable to U.S. forces, to U.S. action, and to our allies. So well, I, I'd a, say their strategy was destabilizing the region. Yes, absolutely. So I think to, to their objectives, I, I think it's been 
uh, some success. Not a total success, mind you. I, I wouldn't go that far. I think they've had their setbacks. Dr. Pollack, and then I'd like both of you to, to just comment on what is the next president going to have to do? I think the next president is going to have a very challenging uh, situation in the Middle East to face. Um, I don't know what the Obama administration is going to do. Um, I hope they will do better in the future than I would say that they have done in the past. Um, I can point to things that they've done in the past, even in the Middle East, where they surprised me and, and did more than I expected them to, and it was important. Iraq being a perfect example. Um, I was very fearful uh, throughout all of last summer that they were simply going to pack up and say, well, we gave Iraq a chance and, and walk away. They didn't. They stepped up, and the air campaign was extremely important. Uh, so too is the provision of advisors and military support. I would like to see them do more, but I'm trying to give them credit. So it is conceivable to me. If they don't, if their first six years are more in keeping with how they handled the last 18 months, then yes, I suspect you will see the Iranians push. Uh, we will not respond. It will frighten our regional allies, uh, who may do some additional precipitous things, as they did in Yemen. Um, that is going to create an even longer list of challenges uh, for the next president. And, and that next president should do what? It's a hell of a question, Senator. Um, I'm working on that hard. Uh, because I, I, I fear, I will put it this way, that if we do not step up, if we are not willing to push back on the Iranians and reassure our allies, that by the time the next president takes office and realistically is able to assemble his or her staff and get his or her policies uh, set, that we may really have only two options in the Middle East, which will be what I'm calling either we step up and make a much greater investment to re try to restore the situation, or we step back and we really do try to define what are our absolute red lines and nothing else, and we let the rest of the region sort itself out in what will be an unbelievably bloody and uncertain process that could go in a variety of directions that would be very harmful to our interests. Mr. Singh. Look, I, I think that um, as, you, as you look at this deal and everything surrounding the deal, um, obviously there are a lot of problems in the Middle East which the next president is going to inherit. Uh, I don't think it's reasonable to expect any administration to solve all the problems on its watch. I think the question is, are you bequeathing to your successor um, a uh, productive framework? Are you bequeathing the tools? Are you bequeathing strong alliances and a, and a strong diplomatic process? Uh, and I worry that, in fact, that's not going to be the case here, that, in fact, you'll have diminished tools, um, weakened alliances, uh, and really, uh, as we've been talking about so far, no real framework to address these issues. And so I think the next president is going to have to come in, look at all these problems in the Middle East, and do a sort of top-to-bottom review and start with a strategy, not start by sort of one-offing each problem, but a strategy for the region which is going to center on, I think, rebuilding alliances first and foremost, uh, and then with those allies uh, coming up with some joint approaches to these problems. My, my interpretation of the testimony is that the implications for the Middle East is it's making the situation worse. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I, I think aside from the human tragedy and some of the humanitarian problems we've seen, uh, what that bodes for is uh, tremendous job security for the two of you as we move into the future. So, uh, thank goodness for that. Yeah, yeah. Senator Markey. Uh, I know Mr. Pollock has two children he's going to have to put through college, so uh, I, I know he's extremely grateful uh, for the totality of our need for expert advice. Um, Mr. Pollock, your, uh, your uh, MIT PhD thesis was the influence of Arab culture on Arab military effectiveness. So that takes us to Saudi Arabia, their culture, their military effectiveness. 
They have much more money than anyone else has. So what's wrong? Why, why can't they mount their own capacity here? Uh, why can't they put together this much larger Sunni uh, military but turned into diplomatic capacity in order to kind of create the conditions for uh, a negotiation, you know, a diplomatic resolution of these issues. Why are they so dependent on us? What is it in their Arab culture that so affects their Arab military effectiveness? Senator, uh, perhaps next time I see you, I will drop a copy of my dissertation, which was 1,500 pages, <laughs> be a to good explain all of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will. I'll, I'll, I'll put the answer this way. First, uh, I think it is clear that all of the Gulf states have indulged a culture of exceptionalism and reliance on others to do their dirty work for them. Uh, there was an old joke that I remember from the 1990s that the Kuwaitis used to make. And the, the joke was, the governments declared war on Iraq and South Korea got the contract. Mm -hmm. right? In other words, we, we don't have to do this for ourselves, we can pay for someone else too. And as a result, they've not really developed their own capacity, their own tools of statecraft, their military, even their economic instruments are extremely rudimentary. The one thing that they are often able to do is throw money at a problem, but throwing money at a problem rarely solves the problem. Uh, and especially in the Middle East, you know, what they've learned is that you really can't buy anyone. You might be able to rent them for a brief period of time, but even then you can only rent them until a higher bidder comes along. And so it's made them very weak compared to what, you know, just looking at the, uh, the CIA World Factbook might suggest based on their per capita income. Yeah, during the American Civil War, both the slave owners in the South and uh, the manufacturers in the North, they could actually buy their way out of serving in the Civil War. So on both sides, the same slogan came up. It's a rich man's war, but a poor man's fight. Yeah? And so there's a lot of that going on in the Middle East, huh? where you think you can spend the money to get yourself out of it or buy the big fancy jets and other equipment, but ultimately it doesn't translate into anything truly effective on the ground without US or allied help to accomplish the goal. But given the context of this deal, do you think the Saudi Arabians um, are going to be more inclined to get a nuclear weapon as a result of this deal or not? Do you think they'll be satisfied that there is an umbrella that we're gonna place over that region uh, and that this agreement will sufficiently constrain Iran's abil ability without detection uh, to actually obtain a nuclear weapon. What, what's the Saudis' attitudes from your perspective? I think this is an absolutely critical question, Senator, and I don't think that there's a quick or easy answer to it. I think it's actually a very complex situation. First, I do think just the simplest answer that the, the deal will incline the Saudis slightly toward nuclear proliferation, but only slightly. I think that the truth of the matter is that the, the Saudis are concerned about the deal, they're concerned about the strategic shift and the potential to be left in a situation where the United States has abandoned them and Iran is once again free to pursue its nuclear aspirations. But that is some way off and the default position of all of our Gulf allies is typically to do nothing and let us do it for them. And we should also remember the long history of nuclear proliferation. Far more countries have started down the path toward acquiring a nuclear weapon than actually brought it to a finish. You know, uh, 
President Kennedy's famous remark that there'd be 25 countries mm -hmm. with nuclear weapons by the year 2000 was famously proven wrong. And it's because there are very important disincentives. And countries with even more compelling strategic rationales than Saudi Arabia decided not to acquire nuclear weapons at various points in time. It's all a way of saying that I think these next 10 years are going to be critical. I suspect that the Saudis will look into the possibility of proliferating, if only as a hedge. But I think whether or not they truly decide to do so, and it will be difficult for them to do so, will ultimately depend on whether they believe that we, or conceivably someone else, will provide the deterrence that they need. Do you think instead. they believe that, that we will provide the deterrence? I, I think at the moment, they do, they yeah. do but yeah. I think that they are questioning it. Yeah. And again, our greatest concern is that they would be kind of a fulfillment of President Kennedy's warning, that there uh, would be 20 to 25 countries with nuclear weapons. We've avoided it. So that's really what this agreement is intended on trying to accomplish, which is to stop it from hitting the Middle East and having that whole domino effect. And so you think, at least for the time being, this will work. Uh, if, if Iran had a nuclear weapon, had already detonated one, and was refusing to give it up, Saudi Arabia would try to purchase or, uh, or create its own nuclear, nuclear weapons capacity. You agree with that? Absolutely. And, and what's more, you know, I, I agree with the statements. I don't think that war is the most likely alternative. I do fear exactly what you're laying out, that the most likely alternative is a situation where we have the erosion, if not the collapse of sanctions. Iran is unfettered. Whether or not Iran tries to acquire a nuclear weapon, we won't know, but it may be like Iraq, where we think that they are doing so. And the belief, the fear that they are doing so may cause others to act. Mm -hmm. And who are others? First and foremost, the Saudis. I think a very, very distant second, the Turks, the UAE, the Egyptians. But I think it's really about Saudi Arabia. And then we can also think farther afield, because there's a question mark if the Iranians acquire nuclear weapons and are not punished for doing so, right. if the Saudis acquire and are not punished for doing so, who on earth is going to punish South Korea or Taiwan or Brazil for that matter? Exactly. So this is an important world moment. It's an important moment for the IAEA. Absolutely. You know, to make sure that it works. And if I may just, in conclusion, just say how much confidence that you have that this IAEA is not the IAEA of the Osirak uh, bombing in 1981. Do you think this is a, a, an agency that now has the steel in its spine and the, the funding necessary in order to do its job and to blow the whistle if something goes wrong? Senator, I think that they're certainly better than they were, but I'm not an expert on the IAEA, and all I can say is I hope that they do have that steel on their spine. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. I know uh, Ranking Member Cardin wanted to make a couple of comments. Yeah, just wanted to, first of all, I thought this was very helpful. I thank both of you. I, it, it sort of helps put in perspective the realities of the Middle East and what our options are going to be, and I, I, we, we all know that U.S. policy is always a challenge, not only what we want to do in leadership, but then trying to get a coalition to work with us. We don't always get consistent messages from our so-called friends, so it's, it's never a, an easy task. But I just really wanted to make one observation, and that is, the, if you would go back a decade ago, I, I, don't, I don't think many people believed that sanctions would get Iran to the table to negotiate um, a nuclear agreement. And we know that we had resistance from uh, the executive branch, both with Republican and Democratic administrations. But Congress um, went forward uh, because we have very strong views about it. So I don't deny that 
this administration or the next administration, whether it's a Democratic or Republican administration, will want to do things their way and will not particularly want Congress's advice on how to be tough uh, on uh, terrorism and human rights violations by Iran, but my guess is Congress is going to be tough. And we're not going to worry too much about the niceties of this agreement because we know what they told us. So I guess I just point out the fact, I think we need to put it into the equation, uh, that there are many of us in Congress on both sides of the aisle, those who are, will ultimately support and those who will ultimately vote against this agreement, that are going to come together to say that we're going to be watching very closely and we're going to be prepared to do what we need to to make it clear that we're going to use every tool in our toolbox and increase our toolbox uh, so that we can um, act on these issues. I say that because I thought the points both of you made about U.S. involvement and the credibility of sanctions or the strength of sanctions being affected by this agreement is absolutely true. I, I agree with your assessments. But I do think after the dust settles one way or the other on this agreement, we need to see how we can strengthen our toolbox uh, so America can have the type of leadership we need in this administration and the next administration to uh, affect Iran's equations in the region as to what they do. Thank you. And uh, this will be the last of our hearings. We do have a briefing taking place at 5 o'clock. I, too, want to thank. It's an all-Senate briefing. I want to thank the committee for uh, uh, just the cooperation in putting all of these briefings together. And all of us come at this with different backgrounds and points of view. Uh, but I couldn't have a better partner in Senator Cardin, and I appreciate uh, very much the way you've worked with us and your staff has to put together such a rigorous um, uh, system of, of briefings and hearings. My understanding, we've now agreed as a Senate to move to debate on this as soon as we get back without a motion to proceed, which is unusual. Uh, and my sense is that you're going to see a very respectful, sober debate about the facts and about concerns that people have. But we'll be entering that uh, with the benefit of the testimony that you've given today, the private conversations that you've been involved in. And uh, for that, we're deeply grateful. Um, for the uh, uh, for the knowledge of the members, we'll leave the record open until the close of business Friday. Um, if you would answer fairly promptly uh, any inquiries that people make, we would appreciate it. And without further ado, uh, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you.